One of our favorite getaways until fairly recently was to uh, was to go to New York City and spend a spend a few days there. We would uh, take in some plays and eat some really great food, walk around Times Square and do some world class people watching there until it got to where New York was so dangerous that you felt like you had to have an armed escort to go up there. So uh, we've, we have kind of temporarily put that one on hold. But New York is a, a world tourist destination. A lot of people still visit the city. A lot of people internationally visit the city. A lot of places they go when they go there. Uh, one of the places that a lot of people visit, especially international visitors, is uh, they visit the UN building which is on the east side of Manhattan overlooking the East River. And just give me a minute for a word of history here. The UN has been there since after World War II. But uh, after World War I, uh, 20 million, 25 million people were killed in World War I. And the leaders of the world realized we've got to do something. I mean, we, this is, there's no... Uh, war that has ever taken this many people. So we've got to get together and talk things out and negotiate and, and come up with some way to avoid a carnage like this. And so they came up with a League of Nations. And 20 years after they came up with a League of Nations, World War II started. And that was 75 million people who were killed in that war. Now after the, and, and nuclear weapons were introduced then. And so after that war, people said, we must do something. We must bring countries to the table. We must be able to negotiate. We must look for peaceful solutions. We've got to stop killing each other. We could wipe out the race. And so the United Nations ended up locating in New York City. And sort of the credo of the uh, United Nations, if there was one, actually was taken from the Bible, uh, taken from the book of Isaiah. And if you go across the street from the UN right now, uh, there is a, uh, there's a wall over there with an inscription on it. And it's called the Isaiah wall because it has this quotation from Isaiah chapter 2. It says, they will beat their, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. That's beautiful. How appropriate. Did it work? Ask the people of the Ukraine, Ethiopia, Sudan, Myanmar, and hundreds of other hotspots throughout the United, throughout the world. No. It hasn't worked. And the reason it didn't work is they took the quotation out of context. So look with me, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 2. And we'll start here for today. Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll begin with uh, verse 2. Now let's look at the quotation here. Beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Let's look at the context in which God gives us this. Isaiah chapter 2 beginning with verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. And so many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither again will they learn war. This is coming. It is coming. But not because the United Nations negotiated it into being, but because King Jesus has returned to this earth and has established his kingdom here. And guys, this is a kingdom of which you will be a part. 
And we're going to spend the morning just talking about the kingdom from various aspects and looking at some perspective on what this kingdom age is going to be all about. So look at Revelation chapter 20. Let's go back there again. And this is the last mention of the kingdom, actually. Uh, some people say, you know, if the kingdom is so important, why did God wait until almost the end of the Bible to introduce it? He didn't. The kingdom is all throughout the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Gospels. And here in this last chapter on the kingdom in Revelation chapter 20, he summarizes and gives us some information that we don't have. It's called the millennium. And millennium is just, the word millennium is not in the Bible. It is just, it's a Latin, two Latin words, mille meaning a thousand and annum meaning year. And so in this place, God actually tells us for the first time how long the kingdom is going to be. The Old Testament tells us all about the kingdom, but doesn't tell us how long it's going to last. And uh, also it gives us the context of the kingdom. When does the kingdom come? Where in human history does this happen? Now, we're going to look at it in just a minute. But let's begin with what Revelation does, and let's put it in some context. Because this is on the 20th chapter of Revelation. The previous chapters of the Revelation have been talking about what this world will be like after the Lord comes for his church. It's talking about the worst time ever in the period of human history that gets worse and worse and worse until finally Jesus Christ comes back to reestablish his kingdom on this earth. <clears throat> so if you look back just a little bit, give you a couple of minutes of history here about what's going to happen. The first thing on God's prophetic timetable is we're out of here. God comes for us. It's called the rapture of the church. And again, that word's not in scripture either. A lot of people talk about that. That word's not in the Bible. No, it's not. First S4 says that, that we will be caught up to be with the Lord in the, in the air. The word rapture is a Latin word that's not in Scripture. But it says that we will be caught up. We will be snatched up. Uh, it's a Greek word, harpazo, which means to snatch or to grab. It's sort of like... Uh, if, if there was a ball on the table and the ball was about to roll off and you reached just before it rolled off and you grabbed it, that's the word. That's the word. It says we will be caught up to be with the Lord. There's actually two things that happen at that period of time. Number one, he comes for, and this all happens in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. But number one is he opens the graves and those who have died in Christ come out and, and they receive their resurrection bodies. Right now, if you were to die before the Lord comes back, your soul would go to heaven and your body would go to the ground or wherever. And uh, so your soul's there, your body's here. But the first thing that happens at the rapture of the church is those graves open or bodies are reconstituted if need be. Remember, God made Adam out of dust of the earth. So, I mean, no matter what situation the, that body's in, God will reconstitute it and he will make it into a resurrection body of which Christ's resurrection body was the first fruits. They recognized him. He ate with them. It was a real body that they could touch. And so the graves will open and their bodies will be, well, they will receive resurrection bodies and their spirits will be reunited with their bodies in heaven. We who are alive, we will immediately be caught up to be with the Lord. So if we're sitting here and the rapture comes while I'm speaking this morning, everyone who knows Christ disappears. You're gone. And instantaneously, we never taste death, but instead we receive our resurrection bodies. So, so there's an order to it, but it all happens instantly. And we are then with the Lord in heaven to enjoy him while terrible things are going on on this earth. This is the period of time, you know, when the Antichrist rises to power when there is a series of judgments that occur on the earth, they get worse and worse and worse. There's wars. There's persecution. 
uh, one minute after the rapture, there will be not one believer left on earth. Nobody. All of us are gone. So there's no saved people. There's no Christians left on earth after the rapture. But there will be people who come to Christ during that period of time. In fact, uh, uh, God will call out 144,000 Jewish evangelists to preach the gospel. Remember, our, our Bibles will not be raptured or Christian literature or, or, or things on tape, etc. There's plenty of material to share the gospel. These people, uh, God calls them out, he saves them, and they go throughout the world preaching. People will be saved during this period. It will be the worst time in the history of the world, though, to be a Christian. Because the Antichrist, the world dictator, will uh, persecute believers unmercifully. And many will die for their faith during this period of time. Things get worse and worse. There's all kinds of judgment upon the earth, the sky, the environment, the oceans, the water. Even at one point, God will open up uh, uh, the abyss and uh, a group of demons that are so hate-filled that they are in prison right now. They're not even allowed to be out. They will be unleashed upon the people of the world. And people, the Bible says, people will cry out to die. And they won't be able to. They'll call for death. And they can't achieve it. Things get worse and worse. And then at the end of the period of time, a group of world leaders, the Antichrist among them and, and other uh, uh, world leaders, meet together for a battle. It's a long story, but they're, they're meeting in a place called Armageddon. Uh, uh, in in the uh, in Israel, place that Napoleon called the world's greatest natural battlefield, and they are meeting for a battle. When all of a sudden, the heavens open, literally, the heavens open, and they look up and they see King Jesus coming with us and with the angels. How many angels? We don't know how many angels there are. Uh, uh, they didn't have numbers when the Bible was written to be able to explain uh, numbers that big. And so John just said, uh, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So there are probably millions of angels. Many of them are warrior angels. They will be coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people gathering for the battle, staging for the battle, will look up and the sky is parted. And out of heaven they see coming the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on a white horse. He has a white robe dipped in blood to symbolize what he's about to do. And they look up and here he comes. And there's angels. There. Remember that when people saw angels in the Bible, their initial reaction was, was to fall down in fear at one angel. Here are millions and millions of angels. This is not, I think, there's Jesus over there. This is like the entire sky opens up. And from one horizon to the next, as far as you can see, there's a heavenly army of angels. And we're with him. We're there too. We get to come back in that time. So there's warrior angels, not only from here to here, but also back as far as you can see back into heaven. And it says they come with clouds. That's not serious, serious or nimbus or anything like that. That's cloud like in the Old Testament, like the Shekinah glory of God, that visible manifestation of God. When Jesus was taken up at the ascension, the angels, the disciples watched him go and, and it took a little while and they watched him disappear into the Shekinah glory of God. And the angel said, someday he's coming back and he'll come back just like he left. Interestingly enough, when he was taken up, he was taken up from the Mount of Olives. When he comes back, that's where he's coming. That's where he touches down. And so they'll see him, they'll see him coming. Us, the angels, the Lord Jesus Christ on a white horse, 
and the, the term battle of Armageddon is kind of a misnomer. Battle indicates combatants. People are fighting and everything. There won't be people fighting. In fact, what will the warrior angels do? They're just, I think they're just there for show because he does it all himself. He does it all himself. He slaughters that army with the word of his power. The same word that created the world. The same world that, well, the same word that when there was nothing, he spoke it into being and he slaughters them. They don't, they don't like, you know, drop over, you know, with a heart attack or something. It's, it's a bloody carnage. And the Lord Jesus Christ exacts God's vengeance upon this evil leader and, and all of those people who are gathered together. And we are with him. Now when he's back on earth, there's several things that happen here. Uh, number one, remember there are people on earth uh, who, who were saved during uh, the tribulation period. And there are people who weren't and who aren't at Armageddon. Like somebody who lives in, who runs a bait stand and walks a hatchie, he's probably not going to be at, Arm, at Armageddon. You know, so if he's lost, what will happen? There's a series of judgments where Jesus is going to determine who gets to go into the kingdom. Who can stick around to go into the kingdom? A lot of people have been killed during this period, but not all of them. And so there's a series of judgments to determine uh, uh, who's a believer and who gets to go into the kingdom. And so somebody who has been saved during the period of time will be able to go in a mortal body. And somebody who was lost uh, will not be able to go. He'll, he'll be sent to Sheol at that point. Later on, he'll be resurrected to stand before the great white throne himself. So now we've got a situation where Jesus is back on earth. He's here to set up his kingdom. And we're with him in our resurrection bodies. And there are people who were alive on earth during that period who have come to know him. And they are there in their mortal bodies. And so that's, that's what happens as we set up the uh, the kingdom, and now he's here to rule and reign for a thousand years, and we're going to look at a lot of scriptures about that. But let's begin real quickly by going through Revelation chapter twenty. We're just going to look at this quickly, and what happens at this period. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, verse one, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. The abyss. Remember when Jesus was uh, was. Uh, uh, in his ministry, and he was going to cast demons out, and they said, please don't send us to the abyss. That's a, it's a, we don't know where it is, it's a place where, uh, where demons are confined, and they don't want to go there. And Satan, at this point, he says, uh, look at verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is cast into the abyss. That means that, that the, during the millennium, Satan will not be around to tempt believers, to cause problems for believers. Remember, as a, as a believer, you have three enemies. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil, during the millennium, will be cast into the abyss. The world is that system that, that the devil has set up, which, which includes uh, media, business. Uh, it includes uh, international politics. It, can, it uh, includes everything that we see and consume all the time that would lead us away uh, from God. That is under the domination of the enemy and that's not in operation during the millennium. Why? Jesus won't let it be. We'll talk in, in a minute about that. But uh, that world system is closed down. That leaves one enemy, the flesh. And since these people in their mortal bodies are descendants of Adam, 
then therefore they bring that sin nature into the millennium. The devil is, is, is in the abyss. The world system is disabled. But the flesh is still there. So they can still sin. And as you'll see, they, they will. Uh, but they are, but Jesus Christ is ruling the entire earth at that point. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been headed, these tribulation saints, because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, nor had received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That second death is referring to what happens in verse 11. We're not going to look at it today. But uh, when uh, the, the, uh, the spirits of the dead are reunited with their bodies in a, almost like a resurrection body kind of deal, and they stand in those bodies before the great white throne. Only unbelievers will stand before the great white throne. Uh, this is the second death. And at this point, they're all cast into hell forever. Now, let's go back. What happens? Oh, that's at the end. Uh, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, that is at the end of the reign of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They'd already been sent there. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The end of the millennium is when the devil is released for a period of time. And remember that the, the people who came into the millennium in their mortal bodies, they've had children. And all those children have had, to, have had to deal with Christ on their own. They've had to come to Christ on their own the same way we do. Some won't. And there will be a period of time at the end. Nothing will happen until Satan is released. And he gathers together uh, through his wiles. He gathers together an army of people who actually want to overthrow Jesus Christ from the millennium. He is ruling in Jerusalem and there will be enough people, as many as the sand of the seashore, who want to overthrow him. And they gather together, and fire falls from heaven, and they're all destroyed. This is going to usher in now the eternal state. But what we want to do is we want to go back and look at the, uh, 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 at the millennium itself, at what happens during the millennium and... Uh, um, the announcement of that. We want to look at uh, uh, what we know from the Old Testament about the millennium. The prophets in the Old Testament, uh, they were able to tell us a great deal. In fact, Isaiah, if you've noticed it, and you're going to be more sensitive to it after this morning, I think, but there's just last Sunday, there was a, a few verses about the millennial reign of Christ. The prophets talked about that. They talked about the first coming, they talked about the second coming of Christ. But these prophets were Jewish people speaking to Israel or Judah. And they were talking about the future from that Jewish point of view. They were talking about what would happen to Israel, about when Christ would come, when Christ would come again. What the prophets did not see was that period in between the first coming and the second coming. The prophets clearly, like Isaiah saw the coming of Christ. He saw the birth of Christ and prophesied it. He saw the second coming of Christ and prophesied it. What he didn't see was that intermediate stage. Uh, look at Isaiah 9, 6 for a, a verse that we look at 
a lot around Christmas, which again is not really a Christmas verse. A little, a little of it is. Isaiah 9:6. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us. Now that we identify with as being the birth of Christ. Next line. And the government, the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end of the increase of his government and of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Jews of Jesus' day had the prophecies of the first coming of Christ. They had the prophecies of the second coming. They knew he was, they knew that Messiah would come as a, as a, uh, as a servant, as one who would suffer. They knew he would come as one who was king. They did not understand the difference. And so they had to choose which one they wanted to emphasize. And they chose to think of him as the coming king, the one who would overthrow the Romans, um, the one who would establish the kingdom on earth. Uh, that's, that is exactly what was foretold by when the angel Gabriel talked to Mary. He said to her, don't be afraid for you found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And when he began to do miracles, they realized this could be the Messiah. But they were looking at the Messiah as one who would immediately bring that kingdom. Jesus knew that, and he offered the kingdom to Israel. But he knew that ultimately that the kingdom would require regenerated citizens. Uh, people who had submitted to him as authority. In fact, when he comes again, it will be because Israel has submitted to his authority, because Israel has turned to him. When he came the first time, they did not submit to him. But they were, the disciples were expecting that. Do you remember when he was on his way to, to Jerusalem? Uh, the, uh, the mother of James and John, uh, who was... Uh, uh, I guess the original momager. Uh, she's looking out for her kids. And she says, Jesus, I know you're going to Jerusalem. I know you're going to be the king. I know you're going to sit on the throne of David. So listen, when you, when you get there and you do that, can my son James and John, can they sit on either side of you in your kingdom? She was expecting that kingdom. She was expecting a literal rule in a literal city. And uh, it took a while for them to realize that that's not what he was bringing the first time. Jesus called himself when he was here. He called himself the Son of Man. And we, uh, we typically look on that as, as that is, is deity identifying with humanity. That is deity identifying with, in human flesh. So he's the Son of Man. That's not what they're referring to. The disciples understood it. The Jews understood what he was referring to. Uh, if you got your Bibles, look at Daniel chapter 7. I'll show you something. This is the phrase, the Son of Man. And, and what he was saying, when he called himself the Son of Man, he was announcing himself as a king. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom 
is one which will not be destroyed. He came as Messiah, which means Messiah, it, you know, we call him Jesus Christ. Christ is an English word that's translated from a Greek word, which is translated from a Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach. And uh, a Messiah was one who was anointed. It means the anointed one. And a Messiah, you were anointed as king or anointed as priest or anointed as prophet. And he is all three. But he came as the anointed one who would assume the government of his country. Assume the government ultimately of the entire world. Now, the reason this is happening is because when God made Adam, he gave Adam dominion over the entire earth. Gave him dominion over everything. And all he asked was that Adam submit to his authority. And Adam did not do that. Instead, he submitted to Satan's authority. And when he did, he transferred the title deed of the earth over to the enemy. You know, when, when, when uh, Satan took Jesus up on the temptation and he said, bow down, he showed him the kingdoms of the world and he said, bow down and worship me and I'll give them to you. Jesus did not say they're not yours to give. They were. First uh, Corinthians 4, 4 calls Satan the God of this world. Uh, Jesus in John 12 called him the ruler of this world. Satan can only do what God's omnipotence allows him to do, like in the book of Job. But right now, when we were born into that kingdom, and right now, we have been transferred into the kingdom of his, of his son. We're not under his dominion, but we live in his domain. It's an important point. We're not under Satan's dominion as believers but we live in this world system that is Satan's domain. After Adam's sin, uh, man had to leave the garden. The garden was cursed. The, uh, the ground was cursed. Man would have to work for his food. Uh, so many things that God had made perfect in the garden. Uh, uh, now uh, were corrupted by sin. And so what Jesus is going to do, as Jared said a while ago, what he's going to do is he's going to come back and reestablish his authority over the earth that Adam gave up. Adam lost it. And Jesus Christ is coming back, not just to save our souls, but to, in effect, to reclaim the earth, this place right here that Adam lost, and to restore it back like it was when Adam had it. Well, to understand what that's all about, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the top ten changes that the kingdom age will bring to earth. So we're just going to look at... When Jesus Christ comes back, comes back at Armageddon, sets up the kingdom, when he sets that up for a thousand years, what will happen? What are the changes he will bring about? Change number one. This is important. Weather. Shouldn't it be? I mean, it's going to be, what, 110 degrees or something today? Listen, when you're out there this afternoon sweating in this hot weather, just know there will never be one day like this in the millennial rule of Christ. Mark Twain said, uh, everybody talks about the weather, but no one can do anything about it. He can. Jesus will. He'll fix it. You know, I, uh, you might know that I'm a gardener, and... Uh, uh, my garden was beautiful a month ago, but with all this heat, I, I water everything. Everything is mulched, taking care of it like I ought to, and the, wheat, and the heat just burns it up. One of the things that he's going to do when he returns is he's going to change the climate. 
uh, Isaiah uh, 35 declares that desert and wilderness areas will flourish with plant life. And that's, that's because that, uh, uh, again, from Isaiah 35, that water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Evidently, there is a lot of underground supply of water in our world, geologists say, and probably that's going to bubble up. He's going to have springs that will come up. There will be rivers that don't even exist today. More about that in just a minute. Rain will increase. Uh, uh, the Sahara Desert will not be the Sahara Desert anymore. It will go back to Edenic kind of conditions. Ezekiel 34, verse 26 says, I will cause showers to come down in their season, and there will be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure in the land. It's a temperate climate that where everything, you know, when Adam was in the garden, he had to tend the garden, but he didn't have to work the garden. I mean, the way Adam uh, got food was he just went out and picked it. And it was there, always there. And there was no decay. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't go bad on the vine because decay had not been introduced. There were no bugs to take care of it, to, uh, to, uh, to eat up what he had planted. And so, or at least there could have been bugs, but they wouldn't eat what he had planted, you know. So, uh, uh, it will, it, God will restore our earth to Edenic-like conditions. When you're sweating this afternoon, just remember, someday, I won't sweat like this. Number two, change number two. Changes in the animal world. Uh, everything you see on Nat Geo will have to change. And the Discovery Channel. And Shark Week coming on this week and everything. Because that is based on two things. It's based on, number one, if you look at that, it's all based on evolution, which didn't happen. And uh, also it's based on predation. The fact that one animal eats another animal, another animal eats that animal, etc. Now, that came about after the flood. When God uh, uh, gave uh, animals to man for food. Before that, man had been a vegetarian. And after the flood... Perhaps because so much of the vegetation had been destroyed in the flood, God gave animals to man for food, and he put a fear of man in the animal. And so man became a predator, and animals became a predator. And they began to eat each other. That's gone, guys. It's all gone. Um, this week, I, I saw a story about a park ranger who's, who's uh, jogging in a in a national park, and uh, as he was as he was running along the path, he saw a, a a bear cub, and he realized immediately, I've got trouble, because where there's a bear cub, there's a mama bear somewhere. And he looked up just in time to see the mama bear charging at him, and she almost killed him. Guys, that can't happen in the millennium. It will not happen. Animals will not attack man. Look with me, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatted steer will be together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox because the lion is not a predator anymore. Go, go back to being a vegetarian. The nursing child, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh. As the waters cover the sea. Not only will climate change. Animals will change. Our relationship to them will change. 
Change number three. Change in the nature of work. God cursed the ground at Eden. And uh, uh, that's where thorns and thistles and weeds came from. And man would have to uh, coax vegetables from the ground now and work it and tend it and work hard for something God did not mean for him to have to work for because God had cursed that ground because of Adam's sin. Ezekiel 34. I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing, and I'll cause showers to come down in their season. There'll be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure in the land. Then they will know that I am Yahweh when I have broken the bars of the yoke and have delivered them forth from the hand of those who enslaved them. Verse 29, I will establish for them a renowned planting place. And they will not again be victims of famine in the land and will not have to endure the insults of nations anymore. If you're a rose gardener, no more thorns. Not in the millennium. No more bugs. Nothing bad. It's all gone. Because Jesus Christ is coming back to reestablish his authority over this earth to put everything back like it was before we messed it up. Isn't that beautiful? Number four, change number four. An, an end of disease and deformity. There will be, in, among the mortal, remember there, we are there in our resurrection bodies and there are mortal people living in their mortal bodies there. And there will, be, there will be death, but not from disease because death is the last enemy to be done away with. And so those people will die in their time, they will die, but they won't, that they won't die from, from disease or any kind of genetic problems or anything like that. Isaiah 65, I will also, 65, 19 and following. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at an age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought to be accursed. As saying that if you, if you, if you, that at age 100, you're still considered a youth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if you die early, it must be because there's a sin issue in your life. So that God took your life. Because otherwise, maybe the, uh, as he restores the earth back to Edenic conditions, uh, maybe the same kind of conditions that led man to live for so long. Remember, Adam lived 900 and something years. And those early patriarchs were in the 700s, 800, 900, because the earth was in a different situation then than it is today. And maybe the same kind of Edenic conditions that caused them to live longer will... will uh, uh, cause people to live longer now. Whatever the reason, we know that uh, that disease is gone. There's no cancer in the millennium. There's no heart disease in the millennium. There's no diabetes in the millennium. That's a result of sin. That wasn't supposed to be here. Sin brought that about. Sin brought death about, but sin brought much more about. And when King Jesus returns, it's gone. Change number five. Social justice will prevail. There's no discrimination, no racial prejudice, no violation of human dignity, no housing shortage, no slums, no human trafficking. Not in the millennium. Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In Isaiah chapter 1, 
Isaiah is talking to Judah. And he's telling Judah, he says, you know, your politics have become corrupt too. And you, you guys need to make this right. And what Isaiah told Judah in chapter 1 was, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. That's what God wanted. Judah didn't do it. But during the millennium, what God wants is what will happen. So all those social ills that we have in our society, they're gone during the millennium. Number six, change number six. There will be a rebuilt temple and worship will be centered in Jerusalem. Now this is in, not enough time to even look at any of it, but it's in Ezekiel 40 through 48, 40, 41, 40 through chapter 48. If you want to look at that, uh, you will look at a description of the millennial temple. Now, there's been four temples. Temple number one was built by Solomon. Temple number two, after, the, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and took the people into captivity, then under Cyrus, they came back and they rebuilt the temple. It was only a shadow of the former glory that it was. But there was a rebuilt temple. Later on, when Herod came into power, he fixed it up a whole lot. He improved that temple. He made it beautiful again. That was the temple that Jesus was in. Uh, that uh, Jesus and the disciples in the book of Acts actually went into that temple. So that's the second temple. And that was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. There hasn't been a temple since then. Right now, there is movement in Israel to rebuild the temple. There is an organization in Israel called the Temple Institute, which is right now gathering the, uh, the materials for a temple. They already have all of the costumes, all of the, the, uh, the costumes, for lack of a better word, that are worn by the priests uh, that were set down in, in the Torah. What would the priests wear? They already have those. They're made like in, a, like in a movie costume area. Uh, they have already built uh, some of the things that will be uh, in, in the temple, like the golden candlestick. They've built other things that will go in the temple. Some of that's actually on display uh, behind plexiglass in Jerusalem, so you can see it. They've done extensive uh, research on uh, genealogical research so they could identify who is a Levite, who who might be in the line of Aaron. When the temple is dedicated, they must be dedicated uh, uh, with these, uh, these uh, heifers, uh, red heifers. And uh, they've got to be perfect. There can't even be one white hair on them or they're disqualified. And so what they've done, they, 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 they didn't exist. I guess they were extinct. And so they've rebred them. So now they do exist. And they have those in, uh, uh, in, in Israel. They are moving right now toward rebuilding a temple. They can't do it because of the uh, Muslim uh, 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 presence on, on, the, uh, on the Temple Mount. But they believe that at some point they'll be able to rebuild that temple. When they do, I think what they're rebuilding is the Tribulation Temple. That's the third temple. And that's the temple that will be there during the tribulation period. And the Antichrist will go into that temple and, and actually will proclaim himself God. So that's the third temple. First temple, Solomon. Second temple, the rebuilt temple. Third temple is the temple to come. It'll be a tribulation temple. And then that will be destroyed when Jesus comes back. And the most glorious temple of all will be rebuilt. The plans for it or in Ezekiel 40 through 48. It'll be the most beautiful temple, and it will be where God will make his headquarters. And people from all over the world will go up to that temple and worship. Number seven, there will be one language. At the Tower of Babel, God confused languages. Uh, uh, when, he comes, when he comes back, I believe he will reverse that. Uh, uh, Zephaniah uh, 3.9 says, 
uh, for then I will give to the people's purified lips or a pure language that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And so maybe in the same way that at one point mankind had one language, we'll go back to having one language so that we can all communicate, all be at peace, and all praise God together. Number eight, all institutions of society will come under the authority of Christ. Business, law, government. Habakkuk uh, 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Even education will be, come under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 54.13 says, All of your sons will be taught of Yahweh and the well-being of your sons will be great. Number nine, Israel will become Change number nine is Israel now becomes the chief nation of the world. What God will do is he will restore uh, Israel to the borders he meant for it to have when they went into the land in the first place. When in the Abrahamic covenant, when he gave, when he gave Abraham the land, later on in a restatement of that covenant, he told him how big the land would be. And basically it's all the way from Turkey down to Egypt and all the way over to uh, uh, through Iraq, and all that was to have been uh, Israel's. They never occupied all that. Even under the glory days of David and Solomon, they didn't have that much land. But that will be the dimensions of Israel, I believe, when, when the Lord comes back. And number 10, Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. What he will do is he will... Uh, uh, he will actually, there will be some topographical changes uh, in, in the world. And one of them will be in Israel. He's actually going to, don't ask me how, he, this is God. He will raise the level of Jerusalem and all the plains or all the mountains and hills around it, he will flatten. So it'll, Jerusalem goes up, everything else goes down. There are rivers that come out of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, you can read this in Ezekiel 48. There'll be a one river that will come out of Jerusalem that will go to uh, that will go to the Mediterranean, and one that will come out and will go to the Dead Sea. And that river, when it goes into the Dead Sea, will turn the Dead Sea into fresh water. You want to hear that, don't you? Uh, it's in Ezekiel 47. Uh, uh, let's see, right after verse 8, somewhere in there, uh, it says, It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be many fish, for these waters will go there, and others will become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Engelam, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets, and their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. And this is not all of the changes. This is some of them. But the point of the changes is, is it's God reasserting the authority of the Lord Jesus over over this world. Now, we're not talking about heaven. Later on, the eternal state. This is not it. This is earth. This is here and now. And Arlington, Texas, like every place else, will have to acknowledge the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. And there will be a government. And we're going to be a part of that government. We're going to be a part of the administration that we will, we don't just sit around playing harps or something. We work in the government of the king. Now, one of the best things about this, I think, is the fact that when this happens, that we can see around us everywhere we look the evidence of God's work. Right now, so often we're in a situation in our lives where we can't see God at work. 
and things are going on in our lives and we say, why did this happen? And I am so frustrated and I cannot, I know you're, I cannot see that in my life right now. I'm having trouble believing. And so what we have to do at this point is if we believe that God is good, we have to look at it from this book right here. And say, maybe that's not my experience. I don't understand this. But your word says, God is good. And I believe you are good. Can't see it. Don't understand it. But I believe it. Right now, to believe, you need to look into God's word. In that day, to believe, you need to look out your window. You see evidence of God's work everywhere. If there is an anthem of the, of the kingdom, it's this one. And it's one that we sing every year at Christmas that has nothing at all to do with Christmas. It's joy to the world. The point is that this will be joy. You know, you are looking to a time of joy because the king is in control. And everything bad has been done away with. Everything that's a result of sin has been put under his authority. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more. Let sin or sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his grace. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for finishing that for me, dear Lord. Yes, on earth. In other words, in the same way your will is carried out in, uh, in heaven, it will be on earth. That's what we're praying. And that really means two things. Number one, Lord, exert your authority in my life. You are king, not only of a future world to come, but you're king in my life too. And I submit myself to your authority. But when you pray, when you pray about the kingdom, when you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying for this time. You're praying that the millennium will happen. As we pray today, right now, as, as we bow in just a moment, maybe you need to thank God that this is going to happen, that you're going to be here. Telling God that right now, Lord, I want you to be as surely king in my life as you will be over this physical earth in the future. And if you don't know him, if you don't know him, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never repented of sin and turned to Christ and said, Lord, save me. I believe you died for my sins. And right now I want to give my life to you as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, don't leave here today until you do it. If you've never done it, just grab somebody, anybody at the end and say, you know, I need to do that. Will you help me? And somebody here will help you or take you to somebody who will. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that our Lord Jesus is coming as a king. Thank you that uh, the day will come, maybe not far off, that you will establish your rule here on this earth and we'll be with you. And we'll be working for your glory here on this earth. And we will watch the wonderful things that occur. 
when you reestablish your authority over this earth to bring it back to the way it was when it all started. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, they've never come to you in faith, I pray that, that this day will not end until they have turned to you in faith. Joy to the world. The Lord is God. Lord, we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.